worried about possible nuclear war with North Korea and how easy it would be for the president to launch it? You're not the only one. Congress is looking for more information, too, and held a hearing today to learn more. So when you hear a veteran campaigner for Physicians for Social Responsibility say... The fact that the United States Senate Foreign Relations Committee held a hearing when it's under the control of a Republican chair with a Republican president on presidential authority to use nuclear weapons, I think that the very existence of this hearing tells you a lot about the sort of zeitgeist that we're in right now. And frankly, PSR, of course, has never felt that it was a good policy to put the kind of incredible power of nuclear weapons into the hands of one human being to decide what to do. But that's where the power resides right now. And when you let that soak in, you begin to understand how big and how hot that seat is that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we have got a jam-packed show. We share Congressman Ted Lieu's presentation on the legality surrounding nuclear weapons. Taken from the October 26, 2017 Plowshares Conference, Nuclear Weapons Policy in a Time of Crisis. We talk with Martin Fleck, Security Program Director for Physicians for Social Responsibility, less than an hour after his attendance at today's Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on the president's, any president's, authority to use nuclear weapons. And if that's not enough for you, we've got our monthly Fukushima update with Nancy Faust of simplyinfo.org. Plus, we will have as much nuclear news from around the world as we can still squeeze in, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than Alabama Senate candidate and accused pedophile Ray Moore has brain cells to think about it. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 14, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. A cloud of radioactive pollution recorded over Europe in late September likely originated from a nuclear facility in Russia or Kazakhstan, according to the French Nuclear Safety Institute, IRSN. Pope Francis has condemned the false sense of security created by nuclear weapons and says it serves a mentality of fear that affects the entire human race. In the U.S., 
the head of the federal agency that produces U.S. nuclear weapons, has privately proposed to end public access to key safety reports from a federal watchdog group that monitors 10 sites involved in weapons production. At San Onofre, Southern California Edison has obtained a permit to bury 75 canisters of deadly nuclear waste on the beach in December of this year, only 36 yards from high tide. Think football field. At the Hanford site in Washington State, nuclear waste tank inspectors looked for a leak and found seven of them. And if that's not crazy enough... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that's out a week. At the COP23 climate change conference in Bonn, Germany this week, the nuclear industry is going bananas. A group calling itself Nuclear for Climate is handing out free phallic fruit covered with stickers, equating fear of the snack with fear of radiation from nuclear reactors. While it's true that bananas contain potassium-40, which does decay, it's a nuclear fairy tale that they're radioactive. No one ever developed radiation sickness from eating bananas, and no one in the anti-nuclear movement claims such. But this group, calling itself Nuclear for Climate, is making fun of our supposed fear, along with touting nuclear as the cure for the climate because it's carbon-free. Forget the amount of carbon used in mining, transport, construction, operation, making all the steel that goes into the containment vessel, and decommissioning, let alone storing that radioactive waste forever. These archaic water boilers are not carbon-free. They are radiation expensive. And equating the forever destructive poisons of cancer-causing nuclear reactor radioactive waste with the potassium-40 in a banana is, well, it's bananas. And that's why, nuclear for climate and all those who believe your lies, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. Over to Japan and our monthly Fukushima update with Nancy Faust. Nancy is communications manager and research team member with simplyinfo.org a not-for-profit research collective that holds and manages the world's largest public archives of data on the Fukushima disaster. Nancy always knows the latest, and here it is. Nancy, let's start out with the Paradise Papers. Explain what they are and how Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, has been pulled into this growing scandal. What the Paradise Papers are, um, some people may be familiar with a previous version of this called the Panama Papers. And what this is, is there's an international consortium of investigative journalists who have uncovered tax havens that various companies and and the wealthy have been using to shelter and hide money uh, so they don't have to pay taxes on it and to avoid any sort of liability that they may have. This newest one, the Paradise Papers, came out in the last week or so, and it involved uh, a number of really big prominent companies like Apple and Uber, but also kind of buried in here was a mention that TEPCO is involved. And what we found with the mentions of TEPCO so far, it's either TEPCO the corporation 
or it's the executives on behalf of TEPCO, the corporation, or it's the key executives of TEPCO. We'll probably find this out in the next couple of weeks. This international consortium is gradually releasing the information. They're doing a series of articles, and then towards the end of their articles, they say they're going to release all of the data. So at that point, we'll be able to dig through it and find out exactly who did what involving these TEPCO execs or potentially TEPCO in hiding money. How, if anyway, is this directly related to the ongoing Fukushima disaster? There's two ways it could potentially be tied into the Fukushima disaster. One is the fact that TEPCO, after the disaster, became utterly bankrupt. And when that happened, the government stepped in, and instead of dissolving TEPCO as a corporation and taking over uh, dealing with the disaster site, they said, no, we're going to put TEPCO on life support, and we're going to give them money. So it started out as, well, we're going to give them money on a short-term basis so you know that they don't go under and they can continue to deal with the disaster site, and they can continue to pay out compensation to those who've lost their homes. But this has, over the years, has evolved into this long-term public funding of TEPCO. TEPCO is still a publicly traded corporation uh, on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. They have shareholders. They get profits. But they're constantly getting taxpayer-funded injections of money into the company to pay for work at the disaster site, to pay compensation to victims. So if TEPCO is hiding money outside of Japan where it's not accountable to Japan's regulatory systems, this is a really big deal because they're getting all this taxpayer money every year. And if they're somehow not paying taxes back or avoiding liability or literally hiding assets, this could be a huge deal. As as far as the, the executive side of it, it really depends on what executives and what they were doing. If it is any of these executives that were in charge when the disaster happened, this could be huge because right now they're all facing criminal negligence charges, which are criminal charges in, in Japan. They also could potentially face personal liabilities. So if they're hiding money offshore, they potentially are hiding money from being sued and losing that money, and that starts becoming a really big legal deal. Is there any chance at all that that money can be recovered or is it sheltered so intensely that there's no way of, say, Japan getting the money back if TEPCO, the company, or any of the executives are found guilty? I think it really depends on who is sheltering the money. I believe a court in Japan might be able to compel the executives to repatriate that money if they're found guilty. Uh, because now it's known it exists. So, I mean, there's other things they could do to kind of coerce them into doing that, even if they can't legally just say, well, yeah, we're taking this money. As far as TEPCO, the corporation, if they are hiding assets offshore, the government still holds enough of the seats on TEPCO's board that they could force them to do something like repatriating money. So, if this is found that TEPCO, the corporation, is hiding money offshore, there is enough government oversight and control on the corporation that they could force them to bring that money back. We will, of course, stay in contact with you to find the further developments in the Paradise Papers case. But now let's talk about the physical situation at the Fukushima Daiichi site where the three meltdowns happen. Specifically, what about the risks of removing the remaining fuel? Right now what they're doing with Unit 3 is they're in the process of installing a, 
what's called a defueling building. It's basically this big metal shed cover to try to give them some control over the area while they're doing work. And all of this work is going to be done remotely because the radiation levels on the refueling floor are so high, they can't have workers up there for any longer than a very short period of time because they end up with such a high radiation exposure. And this situation is after they've spent years decontaminating and cleaning this refueling floor. Even with years of work, it still is so unsafe that they can't have workers up there for very long. So they've gotten to the point now, they've got part of the building installed, and they've started putting what they call the fuel handling machine up on the, on the refueling floor. This is the machine they will use to remotely pull fuel out of the pool and put it into casks to eventually remove it from the building. So they're installing that this week. They're also installing an overhead crane. And that overhead crane will be inside that defueling building also. And that will help them move casks back and forth uh, and, and take, finally take those casks down out of the building. So they've gotten that far, even though they've been working on this for years. Where the risk comes in is actually removing that fuel because the condition of the fuel is still slightly a bit of a mystery. They've cleaned the pool. They've cleaned all the sediment out of it. They've dropped cameras down there, and they know that some of the fuel racks have been moved. So the big explosion at Unit 3 moved some of the racks out of position a little bit. And what is the implication if those fuel racks have been moved? If they've been moved, there's also concern that some of these fuel assemblies could be damaged in some way, you know, that they could be bent, and which would make them hard to remove from the little storage containers that keep these in in these racks. They're in there fairly tight. So if a fuel assembly were to be bent, pulling it up out of that fuel rack could be a problem. There's also always the potential that something could be damaged in some way, that moving it could make it lose some of its integrity. And this is what they worry about is, you know, if there's a fuel assembly that's been damaged, it may not be leaking right now, but if they go to pull it and it breaks and then they have fuel pellets loose in the pool, that's something they, they have concerns about because once you have fuel pellets that are not in a, a geometry that you're controlling, like in a fuel assembly, then you worry about things like criticalities. And that's where you get fuel into a configuration where it can start having a nuclear reaction again. And they don't want to see that happening because that would be a big complication. Do we know the kinds of casks that they are using? There's certainly a great deal of controversy over the kind of casks that have been approved, say, for use at San Onofre here in California as being too thin and too prone to cracking. Is there any awareness of what kind of casks there are and what degree of protection they might provide? Similar to what they did with Unit 4, when they remove fuel from Unit 3 spent fuel pool, it will go into a transportation cask. Then that transportation cask is lowered down out of the building and goes over to a different building that still is in use at the site called the Common Pool Building. And what that is, is it's a huge spent fuel pool that they use for storing their excess fuel. And they've continued to use that since the disaster. So what they do is they bring fuel out of the reactor buildings put it in that pool, and then the older fuel that was already in the pool is what's getting put into storage casks. And, and now you asked about the, the safety of the storage casks that they use at Fukushima. There's two kinds of storage casks approved in Japan. 
for storing fuel. Um, we don't have any data on how many years they can sit before they start having concerns. I do know the type of storage cask used in the United States has a concern because the gasket they use on those casks has a 20-year expected lifespan. So if a storage cask in the United States starts sitting for longer than 20 years, you start worrying about the potential of it leaking. And this is such a big deal because you have spent fuel, which is extremely radioactive. Being anywhere near it is deadly. So if you start having gaskets leaking, you start having a problem where, you know, you now need to remotely handle this and you need to get it underwater and you need to put that fuel in a different cask. So there needs to be some mechanism to do this. So this has always been a concern with the U.S. spent fuel issue. We have no reason to believe that Japan's storage casks are any different. Uh, much of what is used in the industry is used from country to country to country. So what's used in Japan is likely similar to what is used in the United States. So there might be problems with kicking the can down the road so that there's the illusion of a cleanup where really it's only a temporary stopgap measure. Right. And what's going to be a really important thing that they need to do in the future at Fukushima is they need to be monitoring those casks and they need to be actively able to monitor them as in, you know, going in with equipment and a camera to look at those and see, you know, are the casks themselves degrading? Are the seals degrading? They also need to have a mechanism in place over the years they can use if a cask is starting to fail. So they can pull that cask, put it in a pool, and put that fuel into a new cask. Um, and this is something that they found in some of the really old reactor sites in the United States is they had pulled fuel and put it in casks, left that on site, and then they tore down the reactor building. And then decades later discovered that these old casks are starting to degrade and they have nowhere to take the cask to transfer the fuel because they tore the reactor building down. So this is a situation we don't want to see happen in the future at Fukushima. This is an instance where the old saw that came from Native Americans about looking seven generations into the future is definitely not in place, certainly never with nuclear. Right. And this long-term planning at Fukushima, some of it is happening and some of it really needs to start happening. Let's take a look at the decontamination issue. Decontamination, according to Canada's Dr. Gordon Edwards, simply being another word for distribution. Where is the material that is part of the so-called decontamination process ending up when it's taken from Fukushima Daiichi? What actually is happening is there's contaminated soil that has been collected all over Japan. Most of it is on the main island of Honshu and most of it is on that Pacific side of the island. But it's all over Japan. Communities as far as down in Tokyo have these stashes of contaminated soil that's been stored in bags. You know, as they were quickly trying to kind of clean this up to lower the radiation levels, you know, they'd find an empty lot, they'd find a park that wasn't used very often, and they'd stack up these contaminated soil bags. But over time, of course, these communities didn't want these left there and wanted them moved somewhere, somewhere else. Obviously, you know, they don't want them near their school, they don't want them near their homes. Well, then the government had to figure out well, what do we do with all of these bags of contaminated soils that are all over Japan. What they've been doing is they've been moving these bags of soil to the interim storage site outside of Fukushima Daiichi. So now they're storing them there and you know who knows what's going to happen to them in the future. 
but it's become kind of this out of sight, out of mind. They're going to move them to an area that's already, you know, off limits because it's contaminated near the plant. But what we found that was really interesting about this, Asahi Shimbun had a photograph they put on their news story about this. It shows Fukushima Daiichi in the background, and it shows some of these, these soil sites that are, you know, in the foreground. And what's in between them all is a river. And these soil storage sites are sitting literally on the banks of a river that runs into the Pacific Ocean. This sounds like the exact same kind of nuclear numbnuts rationale that represents the proposed Chalk River disposal site in Canada, which is right on the Ottawa River, or the Hanford site, where we have so much high-level radioactive waste that's stored in liquid form next to the Columbia River. To your way of thinking, what are the dangers that are now faced with this being a quote-unquote interim storage site? We all know how long that can last next to a river in Japan. What became a problem with these contaminated soil bags early on was these bags only have a lifespan of about five years. So this really started accelerating as a problem as these bags started to degrade. They were falling apart. They had weeds growing through them. So what they've been doing is they've been bringing soil into the interim site is they put it in a new bag and then they cover it with plastic tarps. And it is sitting on what looks to be either a concrete or a chalk base. So all of this is meant to kind of try to prevent rain from filtering through all of this material that's sitting on the edge of the river. But of course, none of this is foolproof and none of it is going to last long term. You know, they're not putting these bags of soil into like a concrete box like you would with high level waste. So all of this has the potential to be leaching things right down into that river. And once things like cesium-137 meet a waterway, they do a couple of things. One, they can kind of filter down into the sediment in the river, and then they become a permanent feature. Others of it can be carried with the water, which is going to carry it right out into the Pacific. So even if this isn't some huge pulse of radiation, it can be a very slow drip over time, and it's just more being added back into the environment because, you know, they're using this kind of sloppy way of storing it. And our big concern is they use this very interim method of piling up this contaminated soil near the river, you know, covering it with tarps. But what happens if this is neglected and ignored and, you know, it's 10 years and, you know, these bags are degrading and the tarps are falling apart and the government has forgotten about the site, then you start having a big problem. There are echoes of North St. Louis in this and the World War II weapons waste that got into Coldwater Creek and all of the different storage sites that are next to waterways. So actually the nuclear industry has no good answer for storage except to try and sweep it under a metaphoric rug and keep it there until we forget about it and hope we don't notice the cancer rates going up. Yes, and you look at this and you would have hoped that by now the industry would have learned that we need to plan a little further ahead. But you can see by the way they're setting this up that it's very much a, you know, a short-term solution to solve a, a, an immediate problem and you know, that there's not a lot of forethought into what's going on. They're just trying to come up with a solution that's going to make people stop complaining about these piles of soil on their playgrounds. There's another issue going on in Japan right now, and that is TEPCO. Despite all the problems that they are still having with Fukushima Daiichi, with all of their knowledge of what can go wrong at a nuclear reactor, 
They are now wanting to restart the Kashiwazaki Kariwa nuclear reactors, and they're proposing something called the magic truck system to justify it. And when you say magic truck, it just brings to mind the old hippie song, Magic Bus. What in the world is this magic truck system, and what does it have to do with restarting nuclear reactors? We dubbed it the magic truck just because it was such a strange kind of sleight of hand PR tool that TEPCO seems to be using to, to justify restarting these reactors. Um, they've been trying to restart two of the reactors at this plant for years, and they've been doing various you know, safety upgrades and you know, trying to convince the nuclear regulators that they have their act together. This truck system is their latest version of this. What they're claiming is these two pump trucks. Well, actually, one is a pump truck, and one appears to be a big generator truck. And they claim that they can keep a reactor from melting down by using these two trucks to try to keep some of the reactor systems running that would normally go offline in a major disaster. But as we started looking at this truck system, trying to sort out you know, the actual systems it would be handling and how it would work, we keep coming up kind of empty-handed. You know, the system looks very important and very fancy, but what they're trying to do with it to keep cool water circulating, one, may not be enough to actually prevent a meltdown, and two, there's a bunch of different ways that the system could fail or would not work. So its actual use is very dubious, but the really interesting thing about how TEPCO has brought this up is they've presented it with, you know, some nice flashy pictures and in very vague terms. They said, it will do all these wonderful things, and life will be good, and it will also help prevent a meltdown. But the likelihood of it actually being able to implement the way they're talking about and then actually be able to do something significant to stop a meltdown is really unlikely. Is this something they're planning just at Kashiwazaki Kariwa, or are they saying that they would install this in all of the nuclear reactors that they're wanting to restart? This system of trucks that they have would apply to all seven reactors at Kashiwazaki Kariwa. Right now, TEPCO does not have plans to restart reactors at Fukushima Daiichi or Fukushima Daiani, and those are the three nuclear plants TEPCO owns. The system could potentially be adopted and duplicated at other power company reactor sites. So, you know, if TEPCO finds this PR tool to be useful to say, well, we've got these fancy trucks, and so we've solved all our problems, we're totally safe, let us restart. If that succeeds, I could see other power companies in Japan coming up with their own version or buying, you know, this concept from TEPCO and going, look, we have magic trucks, let us restart our reactors. They're always looking for the reason to start their money-making reactors back up again and don't think about the long-term consequences of it. And that's one of the reasons why we talk with you every month to get an update on what's happening at Fukushima. Great. Glad to be able to fill people in this week. Nancy Faust of simplyinfo.org. I strongly urge you to check out that site and see the remarkable depth, width, and clarity that they bring to all aspects of the issues regarding Fukushima Daiichi. We'll have this week's featured interviews in just a moment, but first, I say it every week, and I'll say it again. I am truly grateful for the support that you, the listeners, have given to Nuclear Hot Seat throughout the year. 
There's a steady core of monthly donors whose donations I know I can count on and without whom I wouldn't be able to meet the show's expenses and plan its future. How about joining them? We make it easy for you to do so. And if you're grateful for the kind of verifiable nuclear news you get here every week, how about letting us know with a sustaining donation? You can make it as little as $5 a month. And yes, that will definitely help us. So just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big green donate button to send $5 to the show every month. Come on, that's the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista. If you want to make your sustaining donation larger or give us a one-time gift, you can click on the big red donate button. Know that whatever you can afford to share with us, you're helping to combat the nuclear menace in all of its many forms by supporting solid, footnoted, reliably sourced information. That makes me deeply grateful to you that you're listening and that you care. Now, here are this week's featured interviews. The Lou Markey Bill, otherwise known as the Restrict First Use of Nuclear Weapons Act of 2017, seeks to do just that. Make it impossible for the President of the United States, whoever he or she may be, to launch a nuclear attack on any country without authorization of Congress. Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts introduced the legislation as Senate Bill 200, and Congressman Ted Lieu introduced it as House Bill 669. To understand the legalities behind this piece of legislation, here is Congressman Lieu's presentation from the Plowshares Conference, Nuclear Weapons Policy in a Time of Crisis. He spoke on October 26, 2017. So I'm going to talk about uh, the legal basis for the legislation, and then I'll talk about the light topic of North Korea. So many of you already know what it takes to launch a nuclear weapon in America, but I think it's important to just remind ourselves of how easy it is. So when you look at it, you need the approval of the National Command Authority, which sounds really impressive until you read it. It's two people. It's the President of the United States, and his political appointee, the Secretary of Defense. And under law, the Secretary of Defense cannot veto that order. It is a ministerial act. The Secretary of Defense is supposed to just execute it. So the President of the United States wakes up one day, decides to launch nuclear weapons, gives the order to the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of Defense executes it, goes down military chain of command, and then missiles fly. Uh, it is that easy. No member of the judiciary is involved. No member of Congress is involved. No other member of the president's cabinet is involved. So Senator Markey and I looked at this and said, this is flat out unconstitutional. If you look at the Constitution, the framers went to great lengths to stop the president. They put an entire judiciary to stop the president. They put an entire Congress as a check and balance on the president. And then they gave the greatest power they knew at that time, the power to declare war to Congress. There is no way they would have given one man the ability to launch thousands of nuclear warheads that can kill hundreds of millions of people in less than an hour and not have called that war. If you don't call that war, you've just read the term out of the Constitution. Uh, so as Senator Markey said, our bill is very simple. It basically says to the President, before you launch a nuclear first strike, you need to get congressional authorization. When we first introduced it, we only had a handful of uh, co-sponsors. Now, thanks to you, 
uh, we have 65. And every time uh, the president does something erratic, which is like every other day, uh, we get more and more co-sponsors, and I'm very pleased is now uh, the bipartisan legislation uh, to restrict the president from launching a nuclear first strike. It is uh, HR 669 uh, on the House side, and on the Senate side, uh, it is Senate Bill 200. But there's another uh, form of legal authority uh, for this legislation, and that is the law of war, uh, also known as the law of armed conflict. I served on active duty in the U.S. Air Force in the 1990s. One of my duties was to teach the law of armed conflict. And it's very clear that nuclear weapons violates multiple principles of the law of armed conflict. One of those is distinction. A nuclear weapon, by definition, cannot really distinguish between civilians and military combatants. Uh, it is enormously large weapon that can kill a lot of people, including mostly civilians. Uh, it also violates the principle of proportionality, which basically says, look, you can't strike a target that has 200 civilians to get one bad person. Uh, the U.S. military knows that. Uh, they're all trained to follow the law of war. And so the other reason we introduced this legislation is just to raise this issue because all military members are trained from day one to follow the law, to follow the Constitution. We all took an oath to that and to follow the law of armed conflict. And so we want military members to think twice, especially these top-level generals, that if order were to come down and they see really no reason, no attack from Russia, no attack from China, no reason for why we're launching nuclear weapons, that they think to themselves, is this a constitutional order and is it in line with the law of armed conflict? And uh, by raising awareness on this issue, hopefully we can get pushback within the administration itself. Um, I am pleased uh, that our Secretary of Defense uh, appears to understand uh, the risk of nuclear weapons, and he also understands the risks of North Korea, which I want to shift to right now. He himself has basically said there are no good military options in North Korea. Uh, when I was on active duty, one of my bases was Anderson Air Force Base in Guam. I was under U.S. Pacific Air Forces. We did a series of different military exercises, many of them directed uh, against North Korea. And it was very clear, uh, we have exactly zero good military options. And let me walk you through why that is. We have so very little intelligence on the North Korean regime uh, that we don't know how many nuclear weapons they have. We don't know where they are all located. Uh, they've got mountains and rugged terrain there. They hide their weapons of mass destruction. We also know, according to different reports, they've got 5,000 tons of chemical weapons, and they ha hide those as well. The Trump administration's stated goal is to denuclearize North Korea. You can't do that just with airstrikes, especially because we don't know where all their weapons are. You would need a large and bloody ground invasion to try to find those weapons and then to destroy them. And if we cannot locate them and destroy them before North Korea can retaliate, we're screwed. North Korea can detonate a nuclear weapon in or around South Korea, where we have not only millions of uh, South Korean civilians, we also have U.S. military bases and over 100,000 Americans. They could potentially launch a nuclear weapon at Guam or at Japan, again, where we have hundreds of thousands of Americans, U.S. military bases, as well as millions of civilians. Uh, so that is one reason why there's no good military option, because we don't know how to contain escalation. We don't know if we just were to launch 59 cruise missiles, will North Korea do nothing, or they go berserk. And because we don't know that, it is extremely dangerous where we enter into a military conflict.
But let's just take away the weapons of mass destruction part of it and just focus on conventional weapons. The North Korean military has this huge arsenal of conventional artillery, of rockets, of, of, of other devices that they can launch towards South Korea. 20 million people in South Korea are within range of their artillery. Estimates uh, that have been reported are that in a fallout war on the peninsula, 20,000 people a day uh, could die. Uh, another report came out saying in a fallout war, over 2.1 million people could die and 7.7 million people could be injured. Uh, that is why successive administrations, both Democratic and Republican, have not taken the military option because they simply looked at the facts and concluded it would be a massive loss of life. Uh, so I'm not opposed to war, right? I'm, I'm, in the, I've been, I'm still in the reserves, but I've been in the military and um, philosophically, I'm not opposed to war. I am opposed to stupid wars and also to wars that cause a large loss of life. And in North Korea, if you look at the history of it, in the first war, China and Russia came in for the North Koreans. We don't really know what they would do in a second Korean war. If China and Russia go in for North Koreans again, there's no reason to believe the US wins that war. In addition, we don't know how they would react. We don't know if escalation goes too high, if China and Russia would then feel compelled to do things against US military bases. Would our troops shoot at Russian troops or at Chinese troops? I mean, there's a whole mess of issues that this administration has not articulated uh, nor explained. They have also not explained what happens after the shooting stops. North Korea has the knowledge to build nuclear weapons. They've got the knowledge to build ICBMs. They don't unlearn that knowledge. So to keep them from doing it again, we need to occupy that country or South Korea, but someone has to occupy that country and make sure they don't do this again. We've been in Afghanistan for 16 years. We have not won yet. That is a far weaker country. So I don't know why the president thinks that we could even win a war in North Korea, which means to me, we need to exhaust every other option possible before trying to take the American people down this dark and bloody path of war. We need to look at economic sanctions. Uh, so I voted for the strongest economic sanctions ever on North Korea. The UN has imposed the strongest economic sanctions ever. We do need to give that some time to take effect. And then we need to look at diplomacy. Maybe it won't work, but at least we need to try it. There's been exactly zero official talks between the North Koreans and the United States. But I believe we need to at least try everything possible uh, before we start talking about war. And let me conclude by saying it is completely not helpful when the president does foreign policy on Twitter in 140 characters or less, especially when he undercuts his own Secretary of Defense. Uh, so you've got Secretary of Defense, I'm sorry, and his Secretary of State. So both Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State have said they support diplomacy with North Korea, both of them. And then one day the president wakes up and on Twitter he basically says it's a waste of time. So that causes two huge problems. One, it's very confusing to us, to American people, to members of Congress, and to world leaders. And second, it basically just destroys the credibility of Rex Tillerson. So now when members of Congress or foreign leaders meet with Secretary Tillerson, we don't know who he's speaking for. Is he speaking for himself? Or is he speaking for the president? Is what he says going to be undercut that very same day? We have no idea. 
and it makes it uh, very, very difficult, I think, for the United States uh, to, to operate that way. Uh, my hope is that the folks in the adult daycare center exert some more control. And let me just conclude with, with this rhetorical thought experiment. Um, the president likes to say he wants to be sort of unpredictable and, 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 and so on and, and brash. So maybe in domestic politics you could try that. Really stupid in foreign policy, right? In a foreign policy you want to be clear. You don't want to have miscalculations. So how many of you would have wanted John F. Kennedy to have been unpredictable during the Cuban Missile Crisis? That's where we are now. Hopefully you uh, will work to continue supporting this legislation. The New York Times today did another editorial uh, on our bill, so I think we're getting traction and movement. And look forward to working with all of you on this uh, small issue of trying to uh, keep us alive. Thank you so much. Congressman Ted Lieu speaking at the Plowshares Conference, Nuclear Weapons Policy in a Time of Crisis. We'll post the link to the videos from that conference, as well as a link to the Coalition Against Nukes petition to pass this bill. It will be up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 334. And a reminder that an even better action would be for you to contact your representative and senators directly by phone and make your wishes known. Just Google your state and put in your zip code, and you too will know who your representatives are. Now, if you watched today's Senate Foreign Relations hearing on presidential authority to use nuclear weapons, you may have caught sight of our next guest sitting in the background. Martin Fleck is Security Program Director for Physicians for Social Responsibility, or PSR as it's known, and he was in the room where it happened today on Capitol Hill. We spoke with him less than an hour after the hearing ended to get his impressions of what took place, as well as the official position of PSR. Martin Fleck, so good of you to join us on such short notice today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Let's start with PSR's involvement in today's congressional hearings that were chaired by Senator Bob Corker. What brought PSR to the table there, and what was this about? PSR has been around for a long time, uh, being the medical voice warning about the humanitarian catastrophe of nuclear weapons. And we have a motto, which is prevention is the only cure. Um, so, therefore, PSR is very interested in any steps that we can take that will reduce the risk that there could be a nuclear war or, frankly, any additional use of nuclear weapons beyond the two that were used in World War II. Two cities flattened by nuclear weapons is enough. We do not need to, any more demonstrations to know that um, these weapons simply should not, cannot be used. What was PSR's input, if any, directly into the hearing today? We were present at the hearing. We were, of course, using it as an opportunity to hear right from the horse's mouth what um, some of these senators are feeling. Um, PSR is very interested to know where Congress is on the issue of nuclear weapons, um, but we can't take credit for making this hearing happen. Um, although, actually, the rank, now that I think about it, the ranking member on the um, Senate Foreign Relations Committee is Ben Cardin of Maryland. And just, I don't know, 
10 days ago, perhaps, there was a meeting actually, actually with um, a lot of constituents of his, with one of his senior aides uh, on this very topic of nuclear weapons. That may have had something to do with this hearing. Not sure. Mostly, I think the credit goes to Senator Corker, who is the chair, who decided that uh, this hearing was an important thing to do. What was attendance like? How many senators were there, and was it bipartisan, or did it break along party lines? No, I think almost all of the senators on the committee were actually present, and there were quite a few um, high-profile Republicans were there. Rubio was there, Senator Flake, Senator Corker, of course, Senator Risch from Idaho was there. So there were quite a few Republicans, plus uh, plus quite a few notable uh, Democrats, too. Senator Shaheen and Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, um, Tim Kaine, Senator Markey of uh, Massachusetts, Merkley from Oregon were all there, and Cardin, of course, from Maryland. What was the nature of the information that was presented to these Congress people, and what, if anything, do you think today's hearing accomplished? You know the old saying, right? Marshall McLuhan said, "The medium is the message." The the fact that the United States Senate Foreign Relations Committee held a hearing when it's under the control of a Republican chair with a Republican president on presidential authority to use nuclear weapons. I mean, I, I think that the very existence of this hearing tells you a lot about the, the sort of zeitgeist that we're in right now. There is a lot of concern about um, the temperament of our current president. And frankly, PSR, of course, has never felt that it was a good policy to put the kind of uh, incredible power of nuclear weapons into the hands of one human being to decide what to do. Um, so I would say that, uh, you know, the fact that we were having a hearing and the fact that these senators really wanted to hear some details about command and control of nuclear weapons is an indicator of how concerned their constituents are about uh, the potential that there could be a nuclear exchange right now, you know, sometime real soon, uh, and the concern by the senators themselves uh, about how does this work exactly. I mean, frankly, probably a lot of Americans don't think about nuclear weapons a lot, and maybe they should think about it a little more. Um, and I, I have to wonder, you know, how many Americans realize that the president has sole unchecked power to launch a nuclear war at any time for any reason. And so we were analyzing, you know, the, the hearing was about sort of parsing that out a little bit and finding out, well, in what circumstances might there be people who could stand in the way of the president? Um, you know, is it really true that the president could just decide this on a whim? So that was interesting. And some of it dealt with the legalities of um, when do when do the military people, um, when are they required to follow an order from the president, and when are they allowed to challenge an order from the president, those sorts of things. So that was interesting. You know, the elephant in the room it was the sort of sense of danger that people are feeling at this time. I think a lot of folks are feeling like this may be the closest we've been since the Cuban Missile Crisis to a potential for a nuclear war. And um, yeah, I would say that you, <laughs> you could kind of feel that in the room today, in the hearing room. I have to say that your statement about 
people not understanding exactly how close the president is to being able to just do this on whim or on mm-hmm. impulse is accurate because I've actually gotten into arguments with people who, even though I've been doing this show for six and a half years, were trying to assure me that it couldn't possibly happen when indeed it could. So it sounds like a lot needs to be done to raise consciousness in the public about the actual nature of the danger and why this is a step that needs to be considered. What, if anything, do you suggest be done to help support our senators in making a decision on this bill and moving forward on it? The hearing actually wasn't about any particular bill. The hearing was about um, presidential authority over nuclear weapons. However, there is a lot of legislation happening right now uh, in response to this situation. And frankly, again, I want to indicate that from PSR's perspective and from the perspective of Senator Markey and Senator uh, and uh, Representative Liu, who've introduced legislation quite a long time ago on this presidential authority problem, our sense is that no president, not just this president, but no president should have the sole authority to decide something as consequential as a nuclear attack that could actually you know, change the planet, especially depending on what sort of response happened. Um, but some of the legislation that's out there, Senator um, Markey has introduced legislation. It's um, the Restricting First Use of Nuclear Weapons Act. And uh, on the Senate side, Markey's got 13 co-sponsors. He needs more. There's 100 senators, so he needs more co-sponsors for that. On the House side, Representative Liu has 72 co-sponsors with him on um, H.R. 669, which is the companion bill and the House side. Now, it takes 213 to get a simple majority in the House, so he's got a long ways to go before he has enough votes lined up to actually uh, make this law. I just want to mention that some other members of Congress have introduced some interesting things as well. So Representative Conyers introduced the No Unconstitutional Strike Against North Korea Act, and he's got 60 co-sponsors on that bill. And on the Senate side, some of the people that were in on the committee, including Senator Murphy, uh, introduced the Preventing Preemptive War in North Korea Act, and they've got eight co-sponsors on that. So there are quite a few, there's sort of a flurry of legislation with regards to trying to slow down this idea that our current president could launch a sudden attack on North Korea. What can listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat do to help support their representatives, their senators, and get this bill into public consciousness and also get it passed into law? Yeah, we're a ways from getting it passed into law, but what needs to happen is a groundswell which is starting now. I'd I'd have to say it's starting, and Congress is waking up to the realities of nuclear weapons. So, yeah, the thing to do would be to make sure that when your congressperson is in in the district and has a town meeting, show up at that town meeting. Senator Cardin, in particular, the ranking member on the committee, mentioned that he has heard in several town meetings, he has heard citizens coming forward and telling him how concerned they are um, about nuclear war and the, and you know the idea of all of this power in the hands of one person, and that the framers of the Constitution meant for the power to declare war to be in the hands of Congress, not the executive branch. 
So one of the things we discussed today in the hearing is whether or not a, a nuclear attack would would be considered an act of war. And I think it's pretty obvious. That it is. <laughs> so they, yeah, you know what I mean. It's like how could there be any doubt about that? But right. how could the, how could the framers of the Constitution have you know have ever predicted that there would be such such a war? Um, I heard somebody recently say, I think it was uh, Bill Perry said, you know, a mouse would never invent a mousetrap. It's one of those things that's amazing about humans. Why do we invent these things? So I would say, yes, supporting in general, they, you know, it doesn't have to be a groundswell of support behind particular legislation. I think it needs to be a groundswell of support in among the public for we are concerned about nuclear weapons and we want you, our Congress people, to exert authority on our behalf to prevent a nuclear war or any other preemptive attack from taking place that could lead to a, a general war or a nuclear war. You know, prevention is the only cure. That is certainly true when it comes to warfare. Our Congress people need to know that how their voters feel about going to war, going to yet another war, or going to a nuclear war. At PSR, of course, Another thing that most Congress people don't really think about is that nuclear weapons are on their way to being declared illegal. There were 122 nations in July that adopted the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And so nuclear weapons are going to, in the future, are going to go the way of chemical and biological weapons, and they should be considered that way now. So another thing to tell your Congress people is please don't invest over a trillion dollars on revamping the entire nuclear arsenal because these weapons can't be used and they will soon be considered illegal. That was Martin Fleck, Security Program Director for Physicians for Social Responsibility, the national office in Washington, D.C. PSR has a tremendous amount of information available and talking points if you want to prep for your calls to your congressional representatives. You can find them by going to PSR.org and clicking on the Nuclear Weapons tab on their menu. It's up there at the top. Be sure to bring those talking points to the Thanksgiving table. Activist shout-out. You already know to contact your senators and representatives to tell them their support and co-sponsorship is needed for the Lou Markey Restrict First Use of Nuclear Weapons Act of 2017. Here's the other part of it. If they have already signed on as a co-sponsor, be sure to call and thank them. If you've listened this far, you know why. And congratulations are due to Atomic Homeland, the documentary on the nuclear problems faced by homeowners, particularly the mothers of North St. Louis, who are dealing with illegally buried nuclear weapons waste from World War II in a landfill that is virtually in their backyards, and an adjacent landfill that has an underground fire that is bearing down on the nuclear waste. The documentary was directed by Rebecca Camissa and has been added to many industry insider lists of documentaries to check out for possible Oscar consideration. Now, as of today, The Hollywood Reporter, which is a major industry insider publication. The Hollywood Reporter is featuring a clip from the film on its website. We will link to that page. This is enormous in terms of the influence it will have on documentary filmmakers and Motion Picture Academy Oscar voters. And if you have a chance to see the film this week in New York City, please do. It is a knockout.
Here's today's final thought. I'm tired, it's late, and I'm all thought out. Have a good rest of your day, night, or whatever it is. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 14, 2017. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net and Sean Arclight, deunrenard.wordpress.com and Hervé Courtois, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Bob Alvarez, Reuters, publicintegrity.org, and the red-hot writing of Patrick Malone, tri-cityherald.com, enenews.com, wsoc-tv, usnews.com, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, and a shout-out to all of you Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers literally around the world, those of you who show your love for life on this planet by being the defenders of truth, real truth, not fake truth, real truth, there is no version of the truth, it's just the truth, and supporters of nuclear awareness that you are. Thanks for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook. Be sure, if you haven't already, to stop by, click like, post, and share. Thanks to Priscilla Starr for her help in connecting with Martin Fleck of PSR on very short notice, and Marcus Atkinson for the bananas suggestion. And a special thanks to Plowshares for the use of their live stream audio of Representative Ted Lieu, as well as all the wonderful work they have been doing for decades. If you know of a radio station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, send their info to NuclearHotSeat.com, or you can ask them to contact me. But really, I'll contact them. It's easier that way. Info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly, verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, Take a moment to send a donation to Nuclear Hot Seat by going to our website, nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that when it comes to nuclear, what you don't know can hurt you, and probably will. There, you've all had your nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear Hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.